color in there? I'm going to do green. Okay. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this, and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb you aroused the Lord's wrath, so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. The Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours. 
the calf you had made and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the ark. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made as the Lord commanded me, and they are there now. The Israelites traveled from the wells of Ben-Jakan to Moserah. There Aaron died and was buried, and Eliezer, his son, succeeded him as priest. From there they traveled to Gudgoda and on to Jotbatha, a land with streams of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister and to pronounce blessings in his names as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. The word of the Lord. Be God, and thank you, Emily and Carla, for reading today. Kids are invited to go outside with Kelly and do a lesson. I know that those readings are long, um, but I spend I spend all week or most of all week uh, going over these passages, and then when I hear them read aloud on Sunday, it always strikes me again what I've learned and what I've missed, and sort of all the challenges it is. And so I love. Hearing those stories read aloud, it brings depth and it helps us hear these things ourselves. It, it also helps uh, keep us grounded in the, in, in the story itself. 
Um, so this is uh, our summer of going through the book of Deuteronomy, our last summer walking through the Torah. Um, we did Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the last five summers, and then this is our last summer. And so far, we've only made it to chapters 9 and 10. So uh, as I've been doing this, we skipped 8, so I think you guys should applaud me for that. I did actually move on from something else, um, but I haven't been going straight through it. But also... Um, as I go through this, I'm like, what did Moses cut out of his sermon on the plane? Like, uh, what did he say, not say? Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, I've only got so much time and ink left in this thing at the edge of the promised land. Um, I think that type of stuff is funny. Anyways, uh, um, it's maybe a preacher's joke, and I should just keep those on the inside, uh, not on the outside. Um, here begins this passage. Here Israel. And the last passage that we looked at was the Shema, hear, O Israel. And it's another sense in which God is directing and calling out these people to listen to him, to hear from him. That this uh, truth that Israel knows and the truth that we know and live is one in response to the God who speaks to us. It doesn't come from within, but it comes from without. God rouses us to hear. What's interesting is where this passage ends in uh, 10.11 is now get up and get going. It goes from here to this movement of going into the promised land. And so they are called to hear, but they are also called after hearing to move with their God. Israel is about to cross into the promised land. And one of the themes of, of this book is that is this exists at a boundaried time. I think this is one that will, will rise up in our sermons as we finish the book, but it exists between this time of sort of um, in the wilderness, in instability, in this time in which all provision sort of comes from God in direction, and it is predict or telling them that they're moving into a time, into the promised land, where they will rely on God in a different way, that they're moving in transition. So one of the themes of ways of reading the book of Deuteronomy we talked about in the first sermon was almost as if, as if it were a graduation speech um, with teeth because most graduation speeches are just platitudes shared upon end, and then it's like, okay, go, have fun. Um, but this is a graduation speech that proclaims before them that there is blessing and curse before them, life and death, and it is for them to choose life. It is for them to make this better way in the world. And so they're called to hear again before they go across that they will drive people out of the land that they will um, go with this devouring fire, which they've been following, and go into the land. And one of the themes that we'll consider in the sermon is that this devouring fire is one that is both devouring them and devouring that which is without them. That they are ones who know this God. And, and the book of Leviticus and Numbers sort of talk about the dangers of having this one reside in your camp. Part of this whole thing, this whole teaching today, this whole section of Moses' sermon, is about the dangers of having this one be near you, especially as you show failure to listen. Now, I think there's a way Brian read from Romans 5, where Brian go over here, 
sit in the same spot every week and I still can't find you. Um, the uh, Brian's read from Romans 5 is that as you read this portion of Deuteronomy and several others, you can almost pair it up with Paul's argument in Romans 1 through about 6. And so if you wanted to say that what's the point of today's sermon uh, in Romans, one of them would be all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Israel, you might think you're righteous, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glad, the glory of God. Or even better, uh, and chapters and verses are weird. Um, this is jumping ahead of myself. Well, it's not really a point at all. It's just that, you know the joke about the guy who put the chapters and verses in, rode his horse, and whenever the horse turned, stepped forward, he put a verse, and whenever the horse turned his head to the right, he put a chapter. Um, there are two f- weird breaks that I'm thinking of today. The first is if you were reading the Bible a chapter a day, you would have ended with this plea for God to rescue these people, and then the next morning you would have picked it up, and it said, and then he said to me, make st- two stone tablets, missing the connection between. The one that's most egregious in the New Testament is where Paul in Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 1 is telling you all these sins. And then you put down your Bible, you pick it up in the morning, and it says, and who are you to judge who do the same thing? And you're like, well, that's a weird, just keep reading. Um, but that's that connection there in the argument is, who are you to judge who do these same things? So Israel at this moment, and, and I brought these blocks because I think it's helpful for us to see how we do this. You've got to be able to pick them all up first. Is, is work in our own self-justification. So when we were last visiting Israel, the, the challenge was is we were picked by God because we were numerous. The reason why God rescued us is because we were so numerous. And God is not amused by that, and so he says, no, it wasn't because you were so numerous. Now, we think we're enlightened, we would get the point, Right. Uh, we wouldn't. We would be like the Israelites and say, oh, it wasn't because we were numerous. It's because we were righteous. That's why God chose us. And so we begin to build up our little tower again and to say, you know what? The reason why we're taking this land is because we're righteous. And God says, no, wrong again. It's not because you were righteous. And, and God doesn't just make that point. He tells them the quintessential story of their sin again, which is uh, Exodus 32, 33, and 34, um, sort of in miniature all over again, is that you can't get too righteous when this is your history with this God. You can't self-justify this much. And so first they think it's because we were numerous, and the second is because it was righteous. And he keeps drawing them back to this original promise, that it's because I'm faithful to Abraham. Actually, the second is, 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 this thing that goes back to Genesis is that they've been told all along that they will go into the land when the sin of the people in the land has reached its full measure. So there are two things that, that are going on here. It's, it's you're not righteous, um, uh, and that's this promise, and you're driving out people who have reached the measure of unrighteousness. And so what's the, why are you moving into the land because other people have done wrong, and because I made a promise to somebody related to a long time ago. Kind of humbling, if you think about it. Um, uh, other people have done wrong, and it's a promise that I made before, long before you were born, long before you were known, are the two reasons why you're going to be driven into the land. And so it's the sin of the Amorites and the sworn oath that they are going into the land for.
And he says, and remember and never forget how you roused the anger of the Lord in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been a rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. And this is the scene of the golden calf. Now, one of the, the things that I've been trying to hint at is that Israel and God are being wedded together at, at, through this covenant-making thing. They're, you could even say they're making a treaty. It, it depends on which way you want to look at it. And it actually doesn't depend that much, Matt, which way you want to look at it, because the Bible is going to do both. Um, they are making a treaty uh, in between each other, and they are also forming a covenant bond that is like a wedding. So if you read other portions of Scripture, that will become more clear, too. And in this, in this wedding, they get, while they are getting wedded together, while they are coming together, Moses is up receiving uh, the wedding contract that you would sign together. Israel is... Um, violating that same covenant. It would be as if on the wedding night, the man went home with a different woman rather than the woman he had married. Is that they are already in the first moments, not even that far into it, going off with somebody else or violating what they agreed to. I think there's the calf could either be an image of Yahweh, which is bad because they first commanded not to do that or an image of another god either way they're chasing after which they've been not commanded to and so they've gone towards this one and it's roused the wrath of the lord in that night and in that evening and moses stays and pleads for them and moses pointed out that these people this whole time have been this stiff-necked people They've always been these ones who want to turn away from God who's leading them. Now, in, in Hebrew, the golden calf is also called a molten calf. And so what they've chosen is not the God who is a devouring fire, but a God who they can make out of fire. And it's one of these dangers that I think we often miss in the New Testament, although it's there, is that to have this God near to us is to stand at the edge in some ways. While we would prefer to make our own gods from fire, it is not for us to contain our God that way. Our God is a devouring fire. Our God is one outside of our control. Our God is one who, Annie Dillard has this great quote that we've used before, that where she talks about if people knew what they were doing at church, they would wear crash helmets and life preservers and worry that the sleeping God that they so uh, wonderfully pray for might rouse and judge what they're doing. That she says that if you follow what worship looks like in the Bible, there's something dangerous about it. She says, but women wear flower hats and dresses and and come as if it were a pleasant evening in the park instead of worship of the devouring fire that is God. And that's the challenge here in this passage, is that they have this one who is this devouring fire, and yet they break covenant the night that they are, are supposed to make it together. And Moses is one who pleads for them. He stays up there for 40 days and 40 nights to try and work this out, and he pleads with God. 
One of the things I wanted to point out, which is something that I learned from a, a psychologist recently, is Moses is this one who pleads with the interior character of God, and God changes or, or, or chooses back to his character of faithfulness on that. And so what Moses does when he um, uh, pleads with God in these moments is calls God to God's character, God's constancy. He doesn't try to change God. See, this is where I think intercessory prayer for off, often turns into trying to change God, or at least we think we're changing God. Whereas Moses calls to him, he said, this, this is who you are. This is not what you would want to be. But one of the things I learned from the psychologist is if, the, if you're the type of person who, who watches uh, Schindler's List and thinks you're Oscar Schindler, you're doing it wrong. Like, you're supposed to watch Schindler's List and see the story of one person who resisted in a world where everybody else went the other direction. Oftentimes, we do this. And actually, the challenge of these artistic moments is to, is to actually view ourselves. And I think it's... Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn sort of pointed this out in the Gulag or Capelagal, is the way that we prevent ourselves from becoming like the people who followed along is that we have to imagine ourselves as if the people who ratted out their neighbors, as the ones who have sought destruction. So if you watch these films and you imagine, and there's many of them, but you imagine that you're the one righteous one, that's cute, but probably not true. But if you can imagine and get in the psyche of the people who have turned astray, then you might find in yourself where you too might turn astray. So the point here is if you think that your job is to be the intercessor of Moses for the people, that you're the one out of the whole nation who's going to be the one who intercesses on behalf, it's a good model for us to follow. But it's also for us to recognize that we are often not that one. And particularly in the way that Moses serves here as a precursor to Jesus Christ, it's for us to know that we are not Jesus as well. To know that we are a rebellious and stiff-necked generation. See, this justifying thing, it's because we're righteous, is already at play at the end of this passage, at the end of chapter 9. I will be the intercessor. Okay, we'll go back to the beginning for you. Here, Israel, it's not because of your righteousness. It's because of what God has promised and because of what God is going to do. And we still live in that cycle ourselves of trying to be these intercessors. And it's Moses here who appeals to the character of God. Remember your servants, he calls them. Overlook the stubbornness, their wickedness, and their sin. Otherwise, the country you will brought them from, because it will say, the Lord was not able to take them from the land he had promised, which he is able to do. And because he hated them, he loves them, as we find out. And he brought them out here to put them into death in the wilderness. He brought them out to bring them to life. He calls God's mind to his promises. And what was revealed in Exodus 34 was that God's um, righteousness or God's um, forgiveness and power is there, and yet he doesn't unpunish the wicked. And one of the things, one of my favorite images from the, the book of Exodus is it was talking about God's anger as a fire, and it said that God is, a, in the Hebrew, a long-snouted one. 
um, which means that his anger takes a long time to be aroused. He is slow to anger. Um, and Moses is calling out to this one who is slow to anger, and they are his people who he's brought out at this time. And he gives us this example of what it is to stand in prayer for God's people. And one of the things I think this, this passage shows for us well is that the church in Israel is, in, in the words of a theologian, a repentant missionary. That we are ones who stand under God's judgment first, and that's what enables us to go into the world. Another thing I like calls it the, the Universal League of the Guilty Part 2. Universal League of the Guilty Part 1 was for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Universal League of the Guilty Part 2 is those who know that they've fallen short of the glory of God and are now going as God's missionaries into the world. And so the church is one that exists, the church in Israel is one that exists in this devouring fire as a sinner itself, as one who was an enemy of God. That's why Brian read Romans 5 for us this morning, that while we were still enemies of God, uh, for while we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? The truth about the church is that while we were still enemies of God, it's not a truth that we grasp too much, but that we were ones who were enemies of God. And our status in the world is as ones who are aware of that, who are being saved through this life, of being brought into a new place that brings us into this missionary space towards the world. In the same way that Israel is this one, it's, it's because we're righteous, right? No. It's because God has promised fidelity to his people. And this quote on the back of the bulletin for today, that which Israel's self-righteousness is not capable of attaining, however, is freely given to this guilt-laden people by its God in abundant mercy. It is allowed to enter into salvation's sphere, into the good land given unto a sinful people, but as a people yet unconditionally pardoned by Yahweh. Why God has chosen particularity over universality is a challenge for us. But that is in the depths and the wisdom of God to know and not for us. But in these people, Israel, and as we follow in the New Testament, the church, there's a people that have received God's pardon. Unmerited pardon. The church oftentimes forgets the unmeritedness of this pardon. And so Moses intercedes for them to overlook the, the stubbornness of the people. And what happens in between 9 and 10 is Moses pleads with God to stay in character, to follow in who he is. And then the Lord says to him, chisel out stone, two stone tablets like the first ones and come up on me with the mountain. That hinge there, that gap, that it goes from pleading to chisel out two new tablets. God renews the covenant with a people who cannot keep covenant. God makes it again. God brings it back. And he gives them to be placed in an ark 
And this is the mystery that I think we miss so often, is that God is the one who renews this covenant with us. Now, when I was studying Exodus 33, 32 through 34, one of the things that um, a biblical commentator paid out, that within marriage betrayal, um, it's often the guilty party when the covenant is removed that lives in the memory of it more than the forgiving party. That it's the guilty's party charged to remember that and to bring it back to themselves so that they stay faithful. So too it is here that God doesn't really say that God is remembering all that they've done and led astray, but it's the charge for Israel to remember what they've done as they've been led astray. There's no, in, in this passage, there's no Moses saying, you know, God's still really angry about that, by the way. There's no sort of holding that out over them. But the memory is used, as it was in, in that marriage scenario that I said, as a guardrail to set them on the path again. The memory lets them know where they go astray so that they can be brought back. And so this is the ways in which this is meant to be remade what is broken. So Moses remakes the Ten Commandments and the covenant is renewed. There's one final point, but I, this quote I came to mind this week, and I don't remember how I was going to fit it into the sermon, but it is worth considering from John Newton. Although my memory is fading, I remember two great things clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Uh, this is the man who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader. And I think that that's a message that comes out of this passage well, is there's two things worth remembering. I come from a people who are stiff-necked and have turned aside and forgotten this God. And yet there is a God who is great for me in that. And that is what rescues and saves us. And so this is the truth of what Moses says to them. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people their way so that they may enter and possess the land. I swore to their ancestors to give them. It was not his will to destroy you. So as the church in Israel exists in this repentant fire in the mercy of God, beyond our knowledge of why, it is not God's will to destroy us. For us to remember that God has the power and we have betrayed and brought God to that point, but it is God that laments or relents at that point and forgives his people. And so there's this way in which this shows up for the church. That Moses breaks these tablets. And, and Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he breaks his body. And he says, it is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Moses, as he breaks the tablets and calls these people to remember this moment... It is broken. On the night you betrayed, remember that. But we also remember the second truth, that for whenever we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Though we are betrayers, though the church is adulterers, Though the church in Israel strive after its own righteousness, it is God who renews. 
It is God who comes again, who takes the brokenness, who takes what has been uh, thrown aside and renews it on himself. We'll remember that in the way that Moses calls the Israelites to remember their story and sin. And we remember it in that we are the ones who gathered on the night in which he was betrayed and left alone to go to the cross. And we await the time until he comes again. Let us pray. God, we too strive after finding our own footing in the world. Are we righteous? Are we numerous? Are we great? Are we wiser, smarter, the ones who know it, saving this place? None of those are the reasons in which you chose us. But because the promise you made to your people, and the promise we receive through your Son, that we are brought into new life and into the new land. And so as Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, it is Christ your Son who intercedes for us. In our confession, we hear that Christ prays for us. Christ is the one who supports and guides us. And so in our betrayal, in our turning aside, it is for us to hear that you are the one who remakes covenant, who re-weds us, who remakes us your people, so that we can be led into the promised land. Here, Israel, now get up and go. Amen.